Morena, and welcome to my Dawn Course. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is my daily podcast that goes out to paying subscribers via the Kaka, which is my Substack, in which I look at housing unaffordability, climate change in action, and poverty reduction through the lens of Aotearoa's political economy. So, a couple of things to point to this morning. In particular, a couple of stories that have come out which look at why we don't have enough land zoned for the population, why we don't have enough land for house building. Now, one of the big problems is that we have a lot of homes which are single storey and have their own section, so they're standalone. And you can do that if you sprawl your uh, cities to the horizon and are prepared to pay large chunks of money for motorways and railways and that sort of thing. But it makes sense from a climate change point of view and a cost point of view generally to have more medium density housing close to your CBDs where people can use cycling and walking and buses and trains to get to and from work and play and school and to do that, you really need lots of medium density housing. So we're talking three and four storey apartments, lots of townhouses, and it requires essentially an upzoning of the district plans and the city unitary plans, which the councils have. Now, this has been a constant uh, battle between councils and the government for the last 10 years or so. The previous national government under uh, Bill English and John Key with Nick Smith as housing minister for some of that time uh, argued that councils should be upzoning uh, a lot more land and paying for the infrastructure for that land. Councils, though, are not keen on upzoning because ratepayers who vote are not keen on upzoning. Why? Because they don't want... Uh, the people who live in apartments and townhouses living near them, and they don't want to pay for the infrastructure needed to service all that medium-density housing. In essence, medium-density housing doesn't happen in any sort of affordable way unless it's subsidised by either the state or by councils. And uh, this is the fundamental problem at the core of New Zealand's political economy. Near the government all the councils want to fund the infrastructure needed for the population growth that we've had. And those are choices. The central government loves population growth. And we have fresh figures in today's email newsletter showing that population growth from migration, at least, has been 52,000 people in the year to February. And that we are now seeing near record high levels of migration from uh, of non-New Zealand citizens into New Zealand and we're also seeing a sharp rise in the number of New Zealanders who are residents leaving the country to go and work in Australia and elsewhere. So we have built a churn economy and that's because we haven't built the infrastructure to keep housing affordability or to return housing to an affordable level and we're certainly not achieving our climate change Aims, even though it's building up a massive liability in uh, carbon credits that we're going to have to buy in future years, because voters and ratepayers do not want either rates increases or tax increases to pay for this. Yet uh, we still have plenty of population growth coming through, as the central government 
which quite likes population growth because it increases GST and PAYE uh, revenues, uh, that uh, essentially we have population growth without the infrastructure to fund it. And this has led to uh, a shortage of housing land or land available for housing. And you may ask the question, well, how does this continue? Surely there will be enough young people who rent who vote to change the policies at both the council and the general election level. No, unfortunately. Uh, what we find is that about 800,000 people who are young and renters don't vote in the general elections, and that number is closer to 1.5 million who don't vote in council elections. So what we have is something called a democratic deficit. This was a, a term coined by the Productivity Commission uh, nearly a decade ago in its various reports into urban planning and have been repeated again as recently as 2020, and I include a link to the report where that's done. Essentially, we have a problem, a political economy problem, where older homeowners living in the suburbs in these single-storey standalone homes with backyards and barbecues and driveways for two or three cars and a boat are arguing this is the good life and we should all have it and we don't understand why everyone can't have a standalone section with a house on it and why should we pay for all of these new roads and motorways and schools and all of that sort of thing. Uh, but many of those people voting uh, in those council elections and in general elections haven't quite made the connection with their um, agreement and calls for plenty of new migration in part to fill the jobs in their own small businesses. So what happens is that councillors are voted in by these um, single-storey home-owning uh, rate-paying voters in the suburbs, and particularly in the leafy suburbs close to the CBD, where a lot of this medium densification should be happening. They vote for councillors who vote against upzoning. And uh, that's one of the ways in which older homeowners are essentially stealing a future from young renters. The other way is through the actions of officials who have been appointed over the years by various councillors. So even if you have a council which is, uh, has finally been taken over, if you like, by young renters, simply through sheer weight of numbers, voting for the candidates they want, and the only real case of that happening recently is in Wellington, where there is a centre-left sort of progressive um, majority on the council and a, a, a Green, former Green Party mayor in uh, uh, Tory Farno. And uh, so that was, that's the one place where you've seen a, a large number of councillors arguing for housing densification and for the young. Um, which is all fine, and particularly last year when the council, after a heated debate, ordered the council uh, staff to remove 72% of the villas from the uh, protected character zone in the unitary plan. So one of the particular issues in Wellington, of course, is that around Mount Victoria, Kelburn, Thorndon, Mount Cook, Brooklyn, uh, uh, Miramar, and of course large parts of the hut, um, there have been rules in place saying that if this if there's an area with a single-storey house that's maybe a villa or maybe um, an older house, that needs to be protected for character reasons, 
which blocks a lot of the medium density housing in those areas, particularly close to CBDs. And this has often been the way that, it's, that councillors and voters who don't want development have stopped it using character protections. Uh, and the, product, the Infrastructure Commission has done some good studies on the level of downzoning, effective downzoning that's happened over the last 20, 30 years, particularly in Auckland, where the use of um, view shafts, <laughs> this is where you can't build in an in a area which is in front of one of the volcanic cones, uh, which blocks out an awful lot of development in, well, in Auckland because there's an awful lot of volcanic cones. So character protections, view shafts, and then uh, other, other ways to block um, development uh, used. So um, once you've, you know, won a majority on your council for a progressive pro-housing agenda, you'd think that the council officials would step into line and carry out the orders of the new council. Well, that's not the case in Wellington. It was reported over the weekend that council officials effectively ignored this order about removing 72% of the villas from the unitary plan and put back 797 of the villas in their recommendation, essentially saying we know better than you and um, we've, we've done it. So there's an interesting uh, piece in there which I refer to in today's email newsletter which shows the second way in which uh, older homeowners are monstering young renters by restricting land available for medium density housing, which of course we need to build, particularly in an affordable way, if we're going to get anywhere near our um, aims to reduce emissions and of course to improve uh, housing affordability, which are of course both of the key components in reducing poverty. On that poverty reduction uh, and uh, infrastructure investment drought issue, uh, there's a couple more bits and pieces in the email today. Um, interestingly, Dunedin Hospital, where there's been a local campaign to reinsert $100 million worth of costs that were cut out of the plans for a new hospital there. Well, the government's just caved on that <laughs> late on Friday night. Out comes a typical Friday night announcement saying, oh, well, yeah, we've decided to put the $100 million back into the a hospital, so a victory there for a campaign led by the council and the Otago Daily Times. However, uh, when you look at some of the reports that are coming through, um, particularly one out of the press on the weekend, which shows that uh, dental surgeries are down 80% from normal levels, and you've got kids turning up at hospitals with incredibly painful teeth that need surgery, being sent home with paracetamol because there is no, uh, not enough surgery people, staff or facilities to deal with these extra people. And um, from the New Zealand Herald today is some uh, reporting on 23,000 complaints by staff that they are being, they have been forced to operate in uh, unhealthy, stressed, uh, under-resourced conditions. So what we have is a health system on the verge of collapse after 20 years of underfunding, stressed to breaking point by covid and now um, an exodus of staff to Australia as the Australians look to overturn 20 years of, of saying no to New Zealanders and saying instead yes. So we've got significant population growth in Australia and interestingly um, an inc a big increase in rents there as well because of that. So on both sides of the Tasman, uh, but more so here, um, we have a fundamental issue where we love migration and population growth, but we're not prepared to invest in the infrastructure, 
or the public services or the public infrastructure to ensure that it's sustainable or improves well-being in the form of housing affordability and climate change emissions. So um, so, some work to be done there, and I'll follow that up, and I welcome suggestions from uh, paying subscribers um, on whether or not I should open this up later on today, and also whether or not um, uh, how I should progress this, uh, this area of the democratic deficit in terms of who I should talk to, and if you've got any examples in your area. By the way, I also report on an example in Blenheim that emerged over the weekend in which the council planner uh, argued against the building of some townhouses in an area with 1950s, 60s, 70s um, red brick uh, single-storey houses because of the effects on the um, the look of the area in which they thought it was a dangerous precedent being set. Um, again, councils are riddled with people who don't want development because um, they are used to putting up the hand to say no to development because they don't want to take on the debt or have to pay for the infrastructure involved, in part because the Local Government Act has um, essentially locked councils into a bit of a, uh, um, a set of handcuffs by saying you can never run deficits. And the effects of the local government funding agencies um, uh, uh, common borrowing for councils is that councils are also not allowed to reduce their uh, uh, credit ratings. So what in effect you have is councils who are in high growth areas hitting their borrowing limits as specified by LGFA and uh, also unable to run deficits that are funded by debt and you end up with no investment in infrastructure. So, uh, onwards and upwards. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was my uh, morning podcast for Monday the 17th of April via the Kaka. Kaki te anō.